us continue now with our readings from the Gospel of Matthew, in which some of the teachings of Jesus are contained. And as you have seen after starting with a very brief history, the Gospel of Matthew starts quite abruptly with the Sermon on the Mountain and with some of the pretty radical teachings of Jesus. We have seen that the nature of most of these teachings seems somehow to be to reach Anahata Chakra, to reach a stable level of consciousness at the level of the heart. Therefore, obviously, some of the teachings which Jesus is giving are very, very different from what was prevalent in those days, in the time when they are given, because coming in a culture which was basically a Manipuristic culture, a Manipura chakra type of background, Jesus is trying to bring something one step higher, which is a plane, a revolution in that way. And very often, his teachings seem to be very stern, like the teachings about adultery and divorce and other things that we spoke last time, while they are given a, with the best intention of actually stimulating the higher realization of the human being. These teachings continue in the paragraph number 33, where is, which is the last or which is the one which is the continuation from last time. And it is considered, it is written here under the headline, Oaths. Again, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you have made to the Lord. And quote. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. A beautiful, beautiful, harmonious, presentation of truthfulness in which Jesus says you can tell the truth simply without needing to resort to anything such as the oath. As you realize, many societies and many individuals have gone into this ultimate trip of taking oaths, 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 swearing, swearing, swearing allegiance, swearing all kind of holy oaths. Jesus actually, although this is practiced even by the Christian church today, ridiculously, Jesus, in all the translations of the Bible, not only in this one, this is one of the things which is black on white, in which Jesus clearly says, you shall not take any oath, you shall not swear. You shall not swear, he says, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, or by your head, or at all. That means Jesus is changing the problem. 
he doesn't say because the old issue was you should not break your oath, you should keep the oath that you have made to the Lord. That's a little bit like tapas, tapatia, the emphasis there is clearly laying on the fact that you shall not break your oath. You took an oath to do something, that is a kind of your tapas. But Jesus is discreetly <coughs> moving the problem. He is not saying this is about what you do to the Lord, this is about what you do to God or not. He says, I would say to you, do not swear at all. And he gives a whole list. He says, don't swear on your own life or head or name or on heaven or on earth or anything. Consider how many people would commit themselves to all kinds of oaths today. And Jesus is uncompromising on this because he says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The statement cannot be more clear than that. And that is why this is where we have exactly this shanti, this calm power of the truthfulness in which yes is yes and no is no. There is no need for artifacts. There is no need for additional demonstrations. There is no need for all kind of fabricated things because yes is yes and no is no. And therefore, you can see here indeed a presentation of Satyam from this standpoint. Uh, it is perhaps an additional explanation about how should human beings fulfill Satyam. Fulfill Satyam not by promising and swearing oaths and so on, like, look, I'm really telling you the truth, I swear I'm telling you the truth and so on, because Jesus says, what will you swear by? This is a concept which is a little bit difficult to understand. Exactly as because of the misuse of the word, the things which I have explained so much for you in the lecture on Satyam, exactly as because of the large misuse of the word, we have kind of forgotten the power of the word, also swearing oaths, has become a kind of a common thing. That means exactly as we use, as people use blasphemy on a daily basis, even without realizing that they are saying blasphemic words and demonic words, <coughs> exactly as people use words of negative resonance, cursory words and others, inconsiderately without ever realizing the power of the word, it is the same thing with swearing oaths. People are very ready to commit themselves to swear oaths, such as, Boy, but I swear I love you, and I swear it is like this, and I swear that. And Jesus says, what is the need of swearing? If your yes is yes, and your no is no, what is the need of emphasizing it artificially, pumping it like this? It's only like you don't trust in your own word, and then you need to upgrade it, you need to pump it up by additional things. It's like the other is not trusting your word, and then you need to give it more weight by adding strong words to it. But Jesus says that is not necessary. First of all, he says, it's, and he, in the end, he goes to the ultimate level, 
saying it comes from the evil one. You can consider that this definition because we can consider metaphysically. Let's forget that the definition of the evil one is the definition of a demonic being, of a satanic being. But what is the evil, metaphysically speaking? The evil is the opposite of reality. If God is a reality with a capital R, then the evil is automatically the unreality, the darkness, the veiling of reality, the corruption of reality. And therefore, what we are talking about here is quite simple. Jesus is talking to us about the fact, he says, if you are not harmonized in satyam, then it's kind of you live partly, at least, in the non-reality. Therefore, it's a very, very metaphysical, very alternative way of introducing us to the truthfulness, to the reality of truthfulness, by simply showing that this swearing is not necessary. Actually, people have forgotten what swearing is. Swearing oath, I mean. Uh, taking an oath, taking oath, swearing oath, is basically a magic thing. People don't really realize what it is, but it is a bond. It is taking an oath, it is something which binds you, and it is used very much in magic, in magic, in witchcraft, in black magic, and all kinds of other such disciplines. The magicians take oaths, or determine the spirit to take oaths. For example, when you invoke a certain spirit, you are supposed to invoke that spirit by first reading the oath of spirit. It's like a memento. I am reading the oath of the spirit. There exists such an oath of the spirit, by virtue of which you can actually invoke the spirit, because those spirits have pledged themselves to answer to the call to do this and to do that. And therefore, the whole thing is taking oath. In magic, the myth of Faust, the, the myth of the man who sells his soul to the devil, how does he sell his soul to the devil? The devil pro promises him that he will give him this young girl to seduce her, and all the power of the world and whatever, but after his life, he is supposed to give his own soul to, to the devil. How does he do that? Well, he does it by an oath, right? He takes, he swears an oath that it shall be so. Many people say, ah, it's like in the art of war of Sun Tzu, you know, a la guerre comme a la guerre. That means, of course, you swear, but then in the end you give him the finger and say, ha ha, didn't mean it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of, it doesn't work like this. Maybe you didn't realize, but the power of the word can be falsified in our physical reality where we don't see what is what. But the deeper you go into yourself, into your astral body and into your deeper bodies, there what is, is. Therefore an oath has a terrible effect upon the soul. It is binding. In the moment when you took an oath, it is exactly like you created a link. And that is why, first of all, taking oaths of different kinds even when they are beneficial, it's like the opposite of karma yoga, it's creating karma, it is creating links. And the second thing is that the oath is a magic habit. It is something by which you actually communicate with the spirit. The symbol of taking oath 
is for example the ring. I don't know how many of you know. That is why in all the Arab stories they find the ring and when they rub the ring, the genie in the ring comes out and says, Master, what shall I do? And everybody who has magic rings can do things. The marriage ring, the simple marriage ring which a man and a woman carry is supposed to be the symbol of an oath. Because when they get married, they pledge each other to each other. And therefore, that is an oath. It's a binding thing. They are bound to each other by an oath, which is magic. It is true, you can say, that magic is done in the name of a good cause. That magic, in case of Christianity and Judaism and others, is sanctioned by the Church. It is kind of divinely sanctioned that there is an institution called marriage in which you actually can do this and this. But basically what I'm trying to say, an oath is binding. It is binding by the same principle by which magic binds. If you swear an oath that you are going to give this and this to this entity and in exchange this entity is supposed to give you the capacity to levitate or God knows what other thing, basically that is a binding oath. And therefore Jesus says you should not swear such oath because actually when you swear such oath, first of all, that you jeopardize the freedom of your soul because you create ties like this. And the second thing is therefore, he says, the one, the forces of the universe which can create the binding ties to your soul, they are definitely not divine because the divine is trying to enlighten you and to liberate you, not to chain you by anything. Therefore, actually, this inspiration of taking oaths with very, very rare exceptions, uh, in the meaning that, of course, you can be committed to a spiritual cause, and actually, even the monks and the nuns, they do take some oaths when, not only in Christianity, in Buddhism, in all other institutions like this, uh, the thing is that you can take an oath, but you do not need to make it spectacular or flashy. It is yes or no, that is the whole thing. Basically, Jesus makes you understand that uh, when you take these colorful oaths and you go to a great length, these are not divine anymore. I have personally known environments where people were freely and ridiculously overdoing it and taking ridiculous oaths all the time on all kinds of things which are more or less derived from magic, and their environment was very low and very, very disgusting. For example, it is one of the typical habits of the gypsies in Romania to all the time swear oaths, which most of the time are false, of course, uh, lying oaths, but, and, and they are very, very colorful. They all the time say, I swear by the life of my mom, I swear by the grave of my dead, I swear by the, this is really true, and this is so, and this is so, and this is exactly what Jesus says, you shall not do. Remember that the story of taking oaths is very, very complicated. It surpasses even the background of this discussion because originally the oath is a magic link. It can manifest through some symbols as well, like usually rings were the symbol of oaths. This is the story with the Lord of the Rings and so on. How do the rings have power? This is why the different powers are related to rings. 
In magic the ring is the, buries the symbol of a demon, of an entity. And as long as you wear the ring, you have the power over that demon that serves you. It's like the genie in the bottle from the Arab tales. And therefore the ring is the symbol of the communion. Taking this into account, again I am saying even in Christianity at later times they used it. Even today monks and nuns, when they take the vows of becoming uh, monks and nuns, they receive a ring. For example, the nuns, they always receive an iron ring, which is their ring of wedding with Jesus. In the moment when you become a nun, you are also married to Jesus, and that's uh, the end. That's a kind of an oath, uh, a swearing an oath for life. And therefore, Jesus actually, paradoxically in the beginning, he does not recommend. It is a little bit of a psychological thing, because he doesn't say you should not pledge yourself for life to a cause, to a goal, to a... Of course, he says you should do that, but you should not do it by oath, by saying, oh, I swear that I do this and that, because these are hypocrite things. They are done flashy in this way. Yes and no is enough. That is so much related with this power of the speech coming from Satyam. And then he continues with one of the cores of his teaching, which is already becoming so difficult to fulfill. An eye for an eye. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And he continues in the same trend, that's why I don't separate them. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Indeed, what Jesus described here is perfection. It is Anahata Chakra and further up, it is already becoming free of the chains of the ego because from the Anahata Chakra and up, the beautiful part, the bright part of the human being starts. And that is why he actually contradicts what Moses himself said, the eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This psychology, which is until today the psychology of government, the psychology of the military, the psychology of everything which is manipulistic on this planet, eye for eye, revenge and retribution and all the others, that is the very principle by which our legal system works. When we condemn somebody to death because he did a murder, when we punish sternly because they did that, that's an eye for an eye, more or less. 
and Jesus denies this principle. He says, this principle is not healthy. This is how the things work on Manipura. But in the perfect world which I would like to bring to you, he says, the things go in another way. And he defines it, <clears throat> and he says, do not resist evil like this. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And he continues with all the others, which are all alternative examples, just making it more colorful. If somebody wants your shirt, give him your cloak as well. If somebody forces you to go one mile, just go two. If somebody wants to take away from you to borrow or whatever, give. This kind of thing is, I mean, a person who would behave like this would automatically be termed by the other like a lamb. You would say, this man or this woman is like a lamb of God. They are completely innocent, completely candid, completely without any wickedness, completely without any ego in them, because it is so difficult actually to live in everyday life by such principles. The world around us challenges us, if possible, to react on Manipura Chakra by virtue of our ego and defending our territory. And it's true that many people on this planet are not even able to react on Manipura and therefore they react on Svadhisthana, which is even more miserable and even more confusing and confused and so on. That is why actually the people and the cultures which are on Manipura, like for example the Jews of yore which were having this Manipuristic law of Moses, or as well as the Japanese and other typical Manipuristic cultures, they actually considered themselves better than their neighbors. Everybody around them were heathen, they were pagans. The Jesus consider I'm sorry, the Jews considered themselves chosen ones and the other ones were the outer darkness, chaotic, the Gentiles, whatever, as well as you can see in other cultures, the Japanese considered themselves chosen and civilized, where everybody else were barbarians and uncivilized people. That means, of course, when you compare, you, if you have the opportunity, it's very easy, by pieces of literature and so on, when you compare, for example, the existential modes of the Japanese, for example, in 1600 with the existential modes of the Westerners in the 1600 you get appalled of the difference because the Westerners lived like animals and crawled like worms in their own filth and the Japanese were people of honor and of property and of verticality and many things were very ideal in a certain way and you can say wow you know to get out of this swarming filth of Zvadistana it is worth being at least Manipuristic, because on Manipura at least there is a property, at least there is a cleanliness, at least there is something vertical, at least you have a backbone, you are not just an amorphous jellyfish. But on the other hand, Jesus signals exactly the dangers of that. Jesus says, yeah, that can be good. And of course, he speaks to the Jews and he says, in our culture, we have that, we have that sense of order coming from Moses, like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But he comes and I tell you, it, there is more. That means that is good for this stage. It was good for kindergarten. In the kindergarten of humanity, it is good because you have to get out of the chaotic, swarming level. But there is more. And he is coming directly and proposing the university level of existence 
where he says, get to the heart. And in the heart, he's coming and he proposes this dove-like gentleness, this supreme goodness, this supreme tolerance. He simply says, the, the Lamb of God, be so kind, be so good. If somebody wants to take, let them take. How much will they take? Let's see how far will it go. Because he knows that by the laws of the universe this cannot go on forever. There is only this fear, because many people say, yes, but if I give, and if I let go, and if I won't, I lose, maybe in the short run, but in the long run, no, I will not lose. I'm always pointing you to the issue of non-violence of the first Christians, who cultivated that non-violence, and yet Christianity became predominant without actually fighting wars for it or anything. While, for example, later, a thousand and five hundred years later, the Christians were fighting Christian wars for Christianizing nations. They felt the need of sending missionaries, armies of Spanish conquistadors to Christianize the people of South America or whatever. Couldn't they have been Christianized just like the first Christians were by the power of example? by love, by coming with something superior and saying, look, whatever religion or spirituality you have had until now, we are coming with something greater, with a message from one who was the greatest on this planet. And therefore, of course, that power exists, that example exists, but we do not have the patience. It requires patience, it requires belief, it requires that I should wait because in the beginning I don't seem to be winning. And therefore, the cheap solution is to go strong. The cheap solution is to say, well, yeah, but you know, I cannot afford to win or whatever, and therefore I'm going strong into it. That is the trap of Manipura. Manipura says, take out the sword and slash, and the problem will be solved in one blow. And Jesus says, no. Apparently, give up. That means, give way. Do not resist. Do it. And even he says, overdo it. Somebody asks your shirt, give them your cloak as well. This is a kind of a magic thing. It's like in judo. Somebody is pushing, pull him as well. That means say, yes, you are very welcome. Let's fall together. It's kind of you yourself add your enthusiasm to it on top of that. And he's saying, why on earth is it going so easily? I expected some opposition and now I'm falling. I'm going full strength into it. This guy doesn't seem to oppose it at all. It is a judo in this way. He says, do not oppose and something miraculous will happen if you have patience. This miraculous thing will happen uh, even if it's like a transmutation. It's like a tilting in the consciousness of that person. It's like certain persons have been uh, trying, for example, to rob. There are some stories in Tibetan Buddhism and I have read recently some episode in which Paramahamsa Yogananda claims that a similar thing has happened to you as well. Some robbers were trying to take something from them, and these people, instead of defending it, they took everything out and they said, take it. And it was such a shock for those people who expected the struggle, that not only that they were asking for it, but that they were actually given, that there appears a transformation. That means a man is crucifying Jesus, and Jesus, instead of complaining about it, he says, God, forgive him, because he doesn't know what he's doing. It's kind of, it's too much. That is already becoming to such a level 
that in a few days, in a few hours, in a few weeks, in a few months, it's going to turn your soul inside out so vehemently that eventually you are going to break down and you are going to turn spiritual. You are going to be changed. That is why this way of giving up, it is a way indeed of showing a superiority which is crushing and at the same time it gives a big question mark. If somebody is coming, like it happened with the Tibetan, one of the 84 Mahasiddhas, he had a begging bowl presented as a present by a king, ridiculous, a monk who was living in a tent or in a cave someplace, he had a begging bowl which was made of gold. What the heck should a monk do with a begging bowl which was made of gold, just to beg rice in it or whatever? It's kind of hilarious, but the king insisted. And the thief wanted to steal it. And this great Mahasiddha sensing the thief, the thief coming by, and because he didn't want struggle or violence, he simply stretched his hand and threw it out of the tent, like, take it man, don't even come inside, you know, here is my golden bowl, take it and run with it, and be happy if you can be happy with that. And that man was so shocked that eventually he started practicing yoga and meditation and reached high conditions because he said, look, this has never been happening to me. I'm always used that I have to fight for the things I want to steal. And now you are just giving it like this to me. It's too much. I, I almost cannot accept it. It's like, first of all, my professional pride of a thief is wounded deeply because I'm it's kind of, what is this, you know? It's like for nothing, you know? I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it with the sweat of my brow or what. And that is why, remember that this way of giving up it actually has a magic effect in the end. Jesus speaks here about a very divine principle which works on anahata by which one's soul can be touched. That means you can touch the soul of somebody giving up like this and even overdoing. You want my shirt? Take my cloak as well. And let's see then what is happening because the ball is in your ground now. It's in your heart. That means it's your move. Now you are confronted with an extraordinary problem, because somebody had such an amazing superiority, you asked for the shirt and they gave you the cloak as well. And then it's kind of, what will you do about it? Can you go and sleep quietly after somebody did that to you? No, you'll probably roll in bed the whole night asking yourself, how the heck was that possible? It is actually the manifestation of a divine power, because you will see that Jesus in uh, repeated uh, occasions, he is coming with this thing that he is kind of stirring people and putting them in front of their own supreme consciousness, in front of their own conscience. Like, look, you can do whatever you want, choose right now. That means it is, things are that simple. I remind you in advance, because we haven't met it yet, the history where they want to stone a woman condemned for adultery, and Jesus says it's okay if you stone her, but let the, the, let the one who has no sin stone, throw the first stone. And in that moment, it's kind of, you look deep inside yourself, and you see, oh my God, you know, kind of, how could I say such an enormity? Therefore, it is the same here, if a man is doing this to you, you slap me on one cheek, I turn the other as well, it's like a force of the heart, which is electrifying the other one's heart. And in this way, it's almost like a contamination with love. It's like, it's the most terrible way that when you are down and squeezed and put into difficulty, you can actually open the heart of somebody else. You can actually transmit this mysteriously. 
I remind you that according to the folklore of the Catholic Church, most of the Roman soldiers that crucified Jesus had terrib terrible qualms afterwards because of that, and basically all of them got baptized Christian in a few years, and they became some of the first martyrs because the Romans killed them. It was inconceivable for them that centurions and soldiers who were supposed to be tough, terrible mercenaries and so on, actually got soft and got baptized and they got converted to Christianity and so on. Basically, that's what the history says that it has happened. It appears that even the famous Barabbas, the thief that was to be crucified in the same day and was saved in exchange for Jesus, even he had enormous qualms because his life was, changed, was saved freely by a man who went on the cross and changed the world. And it's kind of, you cannot forget that. That's more like if somebody slaps you back on the face. If you slap him on the face and he turns the other cheek and you do it, then it's kind of afterwards, it's such a burden in your heart because you cannot explain it anymore. It's like the other has actually turned a mirror on you and passed you back something which is irresistible. It's kind of a Trojan horse, if you want. You give me two slaps on the face, I give you the awakening of your soul. From the moment when you did that, it's like something revolves and revolves inside you, and you cannot sleep, and it ends into the awakening of the soul, into the perception of Jivatman. That is the yogic secret contained in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is revealing us a method of propagating the heart, of giving the heart. I think it was one of the Meher Baba, or one of the great Babas of India, who spoke about love, I don't have that quotation uh, literally right now, but he said something like love is exactly like it propagates, it contaminates like a flu or something. Those who have it and who are awakened to it, they give it to those who don't have it and are not awakened to it, and thus from person to person, from generation to generation, from numbers to numbers, love, love propagates on this earth, until in its momentum it will engulf everyone, until the whole humanity will be completely contaminated with this wonderful disease, so to speak, of love. And therefore, Jesus is giving the method by which you can change the world. Albeit, we must admit, it's a terrible method. It requires a terrible self-control. It requires a formidable renunciation, abnegation, that one should accept their misery fully and in the name of giving heart to others to accept to be dragged through the mud, to accept to be abused, to accept to be hit, to accept to do all kinds of things. Look again at the movie Gandhi, for example, from the same standpoint and you will see that Gandhi who was a man of the heart, both coming from India as representative of the Indian heart and being himself an astrological air sign, a Libra, he has kind of intuitively discovered that, like, okay, here I am, hit me, beat me. How much will you be able to go before you break? Actually, that is exactly what we're talking about. Basically, they are like the two, op the two attitudes. Opposed, like somebody tries to take your bone and then you, like a dog, you are growling and pulling back by it. Or on the contrary, you push like in the judo, like in the jujutsu, you push the other way. You seem to fall for it. And therefore, Jesus here recommends this alternative, which is the superior alternative, which is the alternative of the heart. It is so difficult to understand it. And 
than the love for enemies I have commented so many times in the lectures on this word because this is one of the wonderful, one of the essential messages of Jesus who says, don't just love those who love you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you and here he introduces also for the first time, at least the Gospels do that, they introduce for the first time the concept of the Father in heaven. This in itself is requiring another great comment because Jesus is the first man in history who, who dares to define his and our relationship to the universal cosmic consciousness, to this Buddha nature that fills the universe and the eternity as the relationship between a child and his father. That means Shankaracharya also speaks about our relationship to the Absolute but his view of it is cold. Shankaracharya speaks about it as Brahman, the Absolute, a reality which is Im immobile and it's kind of neutral and very philosophical and very abstract. There is a great difference between saying, yes, here I am in this universe which is uh, ruled by the Buddha nature or by Brahman. There is somewhere up, up there, far away, a divine nature which is inattainable, undescribable, indescribable by the mind, immutable, eternal, perfect, and I, through meditation, I am going one day to become godlike and to partake of that. And it's another thing to say there is something up there which is eternal and perfect, and that is like my father. That means it's like so close to me, I can talk to it. That is why we say so often that Jesus is removing a spiritual karma of humanity. He did not come to remove the physiological karma of humanity. It's true. In his lifetime, apparently, this man, this divine man, has done a lot of healing and has shown a lot of methods of healing and has advised people and has done a lot of things. And yet, of course, it was not possible, or rather, I would not say it was not possible. It was not sensible for him to actually take away the physical karma of mankind. Jesus came, and after Jesus, for the next thousand years, there was nobody ill of cancer, there was nobody ill of plague, there was no more illness, no more accident, no more nothing. No, Jesus is not coming to take that. He's coming to take a spiritual karma which keeps the man far from God. Not only that some men and women are agnostic, atheistic, and they plainly don't believe in the existence of a cosmic consciousness, but even people who come to yoga, after two months of yoga, their teacher keeps talking about God, everybody does blessings, consecrations, many lectures allude to a cosmic consciousness, to a supreme energy, Purusha, and whatever, and then many people coming to yoga, they say they don't really know, because they didn't have any experience, they say, well, um, you know, I'm perhaps ashamed to stand up in the middle of a lecture, and to say, what is this God you keep talking about, because I don't feel anything, and I don't even believe in this God, and I actually feel a bit embarrassed in this group of people here, because I seem to be the only one. And then people say, well, I understand this orange guy is telling us that there is a kind of ultimate level beyond space and time, something which is transcendent, unattainable, uh, something which is an ideal, it's like an archetype, it's like the truth with a capital T, 
something really, really distant from what I am in my miserable, petty life. And that something, that perfect energy, that unified energy, that something which is having no yin and no yang, which is having no past and no future, which is eternal and infinite, that something would be like the perfect nature of God and the perfect nature of the Supreme Self. Yeah, I can live with that. But it's kind of, you know, God is there and what can God do in my daily life? That means if you will ask a Vedantin, okay, you believe in Maya and Brahman, the universe being Maya and Brahman, what will this Brahman do for you? You'll find out that most Vedantins will look at you like you are a chimp fallen from, from a tree or something and they'll say, what do you mean? Brahman can do nothing. What do you mean what Brahman can do for me? That means for them, in a very mysterious way, God is dead. There is a God, but it cannot do anything for you. you the only thing which you can hope for is that through meditation you will reach that level and you will become fixed at that level and then you will turn your, your back onto this world of pain and ignorance and be one with that divine consciousness you be, you are free, you have escaped finally from the hold of illusion, from the hold of ignorance. But this statement in itself is something which Jesus contradicts vehemently. Even Buddha, as enlightened as he was, here he is a little bit cold. He proves to be himself not a hard mystic, but a very rational mystic. He comes to this mind thing and he defines very clearly the four reasons of suffering, the solutions, the karma, what is the prison, how to cultivate this, about the mind, the speech, the deeds. Everything in Buddhism is so beautifully classified. Everything is so beautifully categorized. It's typically mental. It's a mental thing. It's not that you should be devoted or that you should cry for God or that you forget about it. You don't need to cry. If you cry, you are a fool. Crying, then Ramakrishna is a fool in the view of one like Buddha because what is the reason of crying for something? The Buddha nature is the void. The Nirvana is the void. Is a transcendent thing which is like an eternal peace. What can nirvana or the Buddha nature do for you? Not much. It's the mind which can do things for you, right? Like the Tibetans use the mind for accomplishing marvelous things. But the Buddha nature, the great void, that's like beyond the beyond. And here, Jesus is bringing us the Baba Samadhi type of vision. The superior level where he says, wait, 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 wait. Maya and Brahman, Purusha and Prakriti, they seem to be very distinct, immanent, transcendent. But what do you mean? They are Shiva and Shakti. They dance with each other. They love each other. They are in eternal intercourse with each other. Brahman and Maya, they react. That means God is not dead. God under the form of Shiva or God under the form of Shakti is one and the same thing. There is a dance between them. You mean that Shiva cannot help you through his Shakti? Of course he can. And therefore Jesus is defining us the idea of a living God. Of a God that is at the same time present and immanent. A God that if you pray 
it will answer. In Vedanta, it's completely absurd to pray to Brahman. You cannot pray to Brahman because Brahman hears but will not do anything about it. Brahman is pure consciousness. Can you pray to the pure consciousness? Sure. With what effect? None other than that, that you yourself become clarified and edified. That means the, this ultimate consciousness will not act because it cannot act. Brahman is not of this world. But Jesus says no. The Father in heaven, by defining God as Father, He does two amazing things. First of all, He says, God is alive and therefore you can have a direct interaction with God. And the same thing, and the second thing, He presents God as close to us. He calls God a Father. What every child knows, a relationship, at least in ideal, uh, the relationship with a father. If God is a father, then of course I can ask my father whatever. What child having a loving father would not be able to ask from his father anything, the moon, everything, whatsoever. Therefore, Jesus is bringing an amazing thing, because remember that many mysticisms before Jesus, they speak about the transcendent God, but somehow they cut it away from the humanity. We are still alone. There is a Brahman up there. There is a Nirvana up there. And so what? Can you phone to Nirvana? Can you phone to Brahman and tell him, look, I need you right now? No. Basically, you have to do the right deeds. You have to do good things to accumulate good karma. And then, when you will be free and harmonious, then you will reach that. But Jesus defines an existence with God. He says, in special conditions, because God is a father, the human being can actually put, bring into this world the divine consciousness. You can actually, we said, God is not breaking the rules of his game. God is not poking his finger into manifestation to fiddle with it and to distort. God is a witness. Unless, Jesus says, you ask. If you ask, you have done your function of living consciousness, which is at having a deliberate free will, and you, as consciousness, having that free will, if you ask, then it is in the rules of the game that in that one special condition, God is entitled to act, because you are a unity. Your drop of consciousness, which is Atman, is a drop of the universal ocean of consciousness, which is Brahman. When you ask, God asks. When you talk to God, God talks to himself through you. It's like a mirroring image. There is no difference between the drop of water and the ocean in nature. And therefore, basically, he says, if God has given you the power and the lucidity that you should stand up and pray to yourself, to God yourself, then basically God has already interfered. Because in the moment when you have the power to pray, the miracle has already happened. The miracle lasts or it is discussable until you have obtained the power to pray. But when you have obtained the power to pray, 
then it's becoming just a formality, we can say. The real miracle is to surpass this deadlock that I do not have the power to pray. I do not dare to pray because I believe that the universe is dead. I believe that God is dead. This is where the limitation will be. And this is the great karma which Jesus has removed in a way because people were not having, many people were not having this kind of relationship with God. Even those who conceived of God, they conceived of God with fear, with awe. The Jews themselves consider their God to be an avenging God, an angry God. Whatever you did, the cosmic consciousness would punish you and God will be discontent. He would be the Rudra Shiva of the yogis of India, howling and angry and never good, never pleasing him enough and have to fulfill hundreds of rules and everything. But Jesus, I don't know if you realize, by placing you on a different model, by giving you a different model of the world, by giving you a different model of the relationship of what God is and what your position to that God is, He's actually taking away your karma and He's placing you in another condition where suddenly you have got the cheek. Suddenly you are bold. Suddenly, you are not a stranger. Suddenly, you are not a sheep. Suddenly, you are not alone in a cold universe. Suddenly, you have actually got the great, incredible cheek to stand up, to look up and to say, God, come and help me. Father, come and help me. It's kind of an amazing boldness to offer this kind of thing, you know, that God is not far, that God is now approachable as a father. As long as you believe in the message of Jesus, you are going automatically to consider that God is close to you, alive, and it is a Father which can help you, which can guide you. And this is a total change of perspective. It is like another karmic level. It's like you belong to a different league of spiritual practitioners. You are put in a category where you are blessed already with the gift of having a personal relationship to God. Remember, ah, you can have a re personal relationship to gods, to deities, to Apollo, or you can pray to Apollo like the Greeks did, or you can pray to Indra, or you can pray... Those are not the God. Those are Prakriti creations, manifestations of different very high levels of consciousness, which represent very powerful entities of a superhuman quality, some of them ruling over solar systems and galaxies, and some of them being entitled with cosmic functions in this universe, such as even the cosmic powers, and yet they are not directly the top of the pyramid, the one and only, while Jesus is coming and offering the red line directly the line directly to the top of the pyramid and he says exactly as those, as those people were talking to God you can reach to the statues where you can talk directly to the one God that one God which seems never to answer and which seems to be dead and cold and transcendent and Brahman is now made available to you that is a gift that is actually one of the great gifts of Jesus because he is calling God with the name Father. That means before him, in the Jewish mysticism, God was not called Father. 
it is true that modern Judaism has actually discreetly borrowed that from Jesus while denying Jesus as a person and considering him a sect leader and a breakaway from Judaism and a kind of a maverick and renegade and heretic and whatever, nevertheless they realize that the human beings get enriched by actually looking at God as at the Father. And therefore, this change of perspective is fundamental. Remember that even in India, even, yes, they speak about the Father like again, Indra or Varuna or, but none of those is the one, the ultimate God. Those are deities. They are just, so the tendency existed in various spirituality, but Jesus is the one who comes with this radical change of perspective. That is, that is one of the points where Jesus indeed took a great karma of the world because everybody who listens to the world of Jesus buys in a package deal also the vision of God as a father. And in the moment when you see God as a father, God is not far from you anymore. And you can actually, in a mysterious way, you can talk to the universal consciousness. You can talk to Brahman. You can talk to the Shiva nature of the universe. And not only that you can talk, but you can have a feedback. You can interact. Exactly as when you consecrate, you get this shiver of energy and sometimes miraculous things are ha happening. That means you are inspired and led by the power of that. And that's a feedback. And that's why it changes the lives of so many people. Because when you have done ten times consecration and you see it works, then you stupid have to believe to be not to believe anymore and not to see obviously that the evidence is crushing. In the same way you do a blessing, that's another type of interaction like this. Then again, you have this thing, sometimes blessings are given to people, people heal and have all kinds of things and so on. And that is why This is a direct interaction and this, the, the benefit of this direct interaction, again I'm saying, it is fully coming through Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings this message to the mankind. Many people have asked, how did it come that Jesus came to take karma of mankind? That's the karma, the separation, because it's one thing to live like a Buddhist, like an Orthodox Buddhist, or like a traditional Vedantin, or, yeah, Vedantin would be a good example, and to believe, yeah, I live in a world where there is divinity and eternity, but that divinity and eternity is passive, it does not interact with me. It is my task to go to Nirvana. Will the Buddha nature or Nirvana help me to reach Nirvana, stretch out a hand and forgive me a little bit, encourage me a little bit, give me some grace? No way. It is waiting for me forever, for me to reach there. And when I reach and knock at the door of the kingdom of heaven, it opens and the impersonal voice from there tells me, welcome, you are home. But until then, I was not inspired, helped, forgiven, given any grace. It was all personal effort. Jesus is putting you on a different track and says, here is the path where there is interaction. Here there is the path where you actually can be helped. You can be forgiven. You can be... And this truth 
which you can see that Milarepa obviously believes in forgiveness and others and others. Yes, in 1300, that means 13 centuries after Jesus delivered the message. As I told you, many things in Tibet, in Buddhism, in India and everywhere in this planet, they have changed after Jesus lived and delivered the message because he put it in the planetary mind and it became a gift for everybody even unconsciously many many religions the Mahasiddhas in the 6th and 7th and 8th and 9th century the Kashmir Shaivism the modern things in Hinduism such as the Krishna devotionalism and others and others Tibetan forms of yoga and others many of them are secretly inspired by what Jesus has brought. When you look at the history of the world ideas, you see that it first appears in the words of this man, and before that nobody dared even to conceive of such a thing. That is why when Jesus spoke about God as Father, and he actually called Father by the name which the small children were calling Father, he called him like Daddy, he used the Aramaic name of Ava or Abba, which would mean like Daddy for a child, and therefore... He, he, used, he used an almost organic, almost candid, naive word for God, showing a real, real intense connection, exactly as a small child will have to its father. Not like a father between an intellectual, cynical, uh, uh, blasé type of person who has a father whom he hasn't seen since 15 years, and they sometimes phone to each other and say, Hi, Dad, how are you? Yeah, right, and so on. And it's kind of, my father is a very, very distant... Uh, no, it's like the father of a two-year-old child, like the father of the three-year-old child, the father which is organically there, in whom the child trusts completely. It's like Daddy, it's not like Dad or Father. It's really the small child's father. This, this approach is purely emotional in this way. It shows indeed a complete connection, a very, very close connection. That is one of the reasons which shocked the contemporary, because Jesus, in this respect, the first one of them, he is himself the Son of God. And being the Son of God, he is like having the nature of God. And with, with that, he shocked. His, because that is something which is the limit in classical Judaism. How can somebody be the son of God, organically speaking, like this? Like be of the same nature with God and talk to God and get helped by God and so on. And in that way, the step which Jesus does here very discreetly is a great step metaphysically, philosophically, theologically and in many other ways. Jesus is bringing to this world a breakthrough. Remember, today, most of you have heard the word, and it sounds commonplace, like, yeah, God the Father, God is our Father. But remember, this idea, even in the Judaic roots of Christianity, even in the prophets of the Old Testament, yes, even in John the Baptist, they did not exist. The, the denomination does not exist. It is only Jesus who defines it for the first time like this. And the paragraph at which I stopped is indeed illustrative because he says very obviously the thing which I said about freedom. He uses exactly that example which is a classical. He says you should love your enemies. He says 
be sons of your Father in heaven. And then he continues. He causes his son, the sun, the sun from the heaven, the astral object, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is indeed a paradoxical thing. What? The sun is shining for everybody. The rain is coming for everybody. It's like the love of God is unconditional ultimately. And many people will say, well, what about the people who do good things and the people who do bad things? The people who do good things and the people who do bad things, they are not punished by the presence or the lack of the love of God. That's what people do because we are so attached and we use our emotions in this destructive way. God does not love more the virtuous and love less the sinner. Jesus says it obviously. Ah, that's the law of karma, that the virtuous is treated good by the universe and the sinner is torturing himself and going to hell or is having a lot of problems. Sure, but the love of God is not different. That's why we don't understand. We say, but if the love of God is so great, why does, love, uh, why does God allow this one to suffer? And whatever. I have already explained that in the lecture on detachment, on aparigraha. We are thinking with the human mind. We think if God loves, He should not allow people to have uh, trouble or whatever. That is not the point. We, this is the human love. Because you say, well, normally, I would let that one rot and have trouble, and that one, I'm going to love him and protect him. It doesn't work like this. The divine love is a different measure. Therefore, Jesus says, look, the sun and the rain are universal for everybody. The love of God is there for everybody, virtuous or sinner. The difference is not in the love of God. The problem is that the one who suffers in hell... He believes that God doesn't love him anymore. Therefore, and therefore he says, well, God doesn't love me. I don't love God. I don't get anything. He doesn't give me anything. I am a, this is self-suggestion. This is the most destructive way of using your mind. And this is exactly the problem. That means God paradoxically does not love less the, the sinner who has reached in hell maybe even more compassionately and even more. And people can say, but what, do I deserve such a gift? Yes, the love of God is universal and unconditional. But the problem is that when we suffer and when we don't feel the love of God, we don't feel it because we close to it. We refuse it. We refuse to admit that at the same time we can be punished by the laws of karma and yet beloved by God loved by God and therefore we with our own self-suggestion we say now I will not show up myself in the eyes of God I am ashamed in front of God I am guilty as hell yes I am taking my righteous punishment yes I am in hell and deservedly I am in hell yes let me stay here in hell and suffer and cry because obviously God is angry at me Jesus says God is not angry at you He loves you all the time but Remember the mind, everything which is pleasant, 
the mind attaches to it and everything which is unpleasant the mind de develops abhorrence to it and rejects it that's just the nature of the mind is a mental monkey so of course when you are in agony it's difficult to accept that God loves you that the God the love of God has actually not changed a bit maybe it has actually become even more merciful and more compassionate because you are dragging yourself unworthily through mud but still our mind cannot accept that and says, no, no, it, I can feel it. It must be that God is angry at me. Remember that Jesus is dispelling that thing. Jesus is not speaking about divine anger in this way that God will stop loving someone. The laws of karma are the laws of karma and the love of God it is something entirely different, acting on a different level. That is why this example of continuity of love is perfect. I already commented a lot, try to look again into our lecture about Aparigraha and what is the true freedom and what is the true love and what are all those things. Therefore, in the end, basically Jesus gives the essence of his message. He asks for so many difficult things. He said, not an eye for an eye, not this, not that, don't do this, do that. And all of them are so much to ask from a limited human being. And in the end, he basically says what he meant to say with all this. What have I been raving about until now? He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. At the same time, he is telling us that there is perfection in us, which is Atman, which is Purusha. Nothing is perfect in this universe. And he says, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is. That yoga, the union between the individual soul and the universal soul. He, he doesn't say be perfect. He says be perfect as God in Heaven is perfect. That's imitation. That's a resonance. You are the small man, the universe is the great man. So in that way, be perfect as that is perfect. Reach your perfect Atman, which is a reflection of the perfect Purusha or the perfect Brahman of the perfect Paramatman. The implication is very, very clear. He here, by this invitation to perfection, says, reach inside you that thing which is immortal and which, by the way, it exists at the level of the macrocosm because your Father in Heaven is also perfect. The essence of the Father in Heaven is perfection and the same perfection is available to you. You cannot have a more clear message than that in the meaning, in, in defining the human evolution, in defining the goal. And he continues, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in Heaven. That's a very stern statement and it is very, very welcome. It is exactly what I was saying two times ago about the story with the humility. Jesus again says, you are going to get your reward according to the level where you invested. If you invested for your name and fame on Manipura, then everybody will praise you and will say, wow, you are doing so much and that's what you got from it. Remember that even the yogis have had the feeling of that and they said when you do this practice and this practice, do it in secret. When a practice is in secret, they say it has all its strength and when it is exposed, it loses its strength. 
many people can say why. The actual fact of it is that if you don't do it in secret, other people will know about it and praise you for it. And when you have been praised, you have got your reward on Manipura at the level of your ego. Therefore, he says, if you want to accumulate the spiritual merit, don't make it public. Your act of righteousness, it's almost a word which makes me think about the word tapas, acts of righteousness. That means austerities, things which are difficult and yet you fulfill them. When you do them, don't do it. Don't rub it in the eyes of people. He is very stern. He said, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Instead of your soul being enriched, your ego will be puffed up. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing, which is incorporating in it as well the Karma Yoga. This would be, Jesus is intuitively suggesting to people a way of doing actions like Karma Yoga. Nobody will know, but you in your soul will know, and God will know, and that's how you build your soul. That's that mysterious Jivatman that you feel, my soul has been renewed, I am reborn, I am happy in my heart, I am living my life the right way, I have done what is right to be done. Therefore, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing, and he says, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Anybody who does charity and makes the world know about it, get a Nobel Prize for peace for your charity or whatever, that's it. It's good perhaps as an example, but it is nothing which is done for God. It is nothing which contributes as an example for God. That is why, look at the lives of the exemplary people, you will see that even Mahatma Gandhi and others, they did many, many acts of austerity, they didn't want people to know. They lived a very modest life. There are many periods in the life of Gandhi himself, while he was a famous revolutionary and whatever, he was running to his ashram, wherever it was, I forgot the name of that city, and he was spinning cotton on his manual wheel, on his spinning wheel, and he was doing his tapas, and he was doing... He lived a very simple life, a very ascetic life, a very coolie-like life, a very modest, outcast type of life, working every day, and it's true that at some point there were people who came and took interviews and saw him, but at the same time he had this thing, that he would go alone and do all kinds of things people will not know. You want to see a similar principle how the power comes by? When the Napoleon, the emperor, when he died, when they, when they performed the final examination on his dead body, his doctors discovered a lot of scars and wounds from wars before, about which not even his personal physician knew. That means Napoleon, in war and battle, often got wounded, and not even his doctor got to know. He never said it to anybody. He just, he never bragged, look at my scars, you know, I've been in wars. Here is my chest full of scars and I'm a great hero, I fought. No, even when he was emperor, 
he was somehow aware that that was giving him a merit, a strength on Manipura or whatever, that he was not showing it. His own personal physician, try to think about people of today, how hypochondriac they are, how much imaginary uh, patients they are, how much they will make fuss for every little thing and problem, and Napoleon had war wounds, and he didn't even show them to the doctor. He said, ah, it's a flesh wound, you know, it doesn't matter. Forget, even the doctor, I'll take care of it. He never bragged about it and say, ah, see, soldiers, I fought with you in the first line. Look, I got bleeding with you here. You know, am I not a hero? Am I not fraternal to you? Am I not a great general that I'm fighting with you and bleeding with you here? No, he never said it. That secret helped him get married somewhere else. That, that is why, remember this principle, because many things come to you when you don't do things in the view of people. Let people believe that you are stupid and not so good and not so and so on. You just do what you have to do because you have to believe in your relationship with God. Jesus here is making very clear, if you believe more in your relationship with human beings than you believe in your relationship with God, of course you will want to be praised by the world. But the one who sets the priorities right, he or she wants rather to be rewarded by the divine consciousness. That's where our goal is. That is why he uses that famous, famous story. He says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That is a double statement. You know how many things relate to the left and the right, the masculine and the feminine inner nature. There is a lot of analogies that can be drawn here, but the simple one which comes immediately is obviously that means if you give with the right hand, you don't need the left hand to know. That means you don't need at the same time to boast about it, to brag about it. That is why uh, the fathers of the desert and other Christian mystics They've even developed a philosophy that it is no need for you to know how I have done a lot of good things. It's like when you have said that, you have conceptualized. Your left hand knows what your right hand has done. Even you inside yourself need to make a kind of separation. I did it, but I don't ask for the authorship of it. It's karma yoga, right? I'm not saying I did this. My left hemisphere doesn't know what my right hemisphere has done or whatever. My left hand that is a part of me, that egoistic part of me which says, me, me, I have done that, me, it doesn't know. It's kind of, I have done it like in a dream. I have done it like spontaneously. I have done it like without thinking. And then if somebody says, but you did that, you say, well, I don't know, I don't really know, forget about it. You know, it's kind of, it's unimportant. I don't even want to hear about it. Because if I hear too much about it, I start saying, yeah, yeah, I did that. Yeah, this is something which I did. And then I'm doomed. It's not karma yoga anymore. My own subconscious mind asks for the karma of it, asks for the fruits of it, because I start appropriating it. I start saying, I did that. No, it's exactly the opposite of it. It's like, I didn't do it. God did it through me. Shiva did it through me. Krishna did it through me. Jesus did it. The universe did it through me. Somebody gave food to the poor. Yeah, well, but you know, it was not me. It was kind of a universe. It's kind of, I refuse it. It's like, my brain refuses to acknowledge the fact that I did a good deed. 
and that wonderful, it reflects in such a wonderful way the principle of karma yoga, that I do not seek for the fruits of the action. Even mentally, I stay away from those fruits, and even inside me, there is a part of myself which is forbidden to say, this is mine. It's how beautiful it is in the story, in the life story of, I think it was Henrik V, after the battle of Azincourt, when he has this incredible victory, where they kill an incredible number of Frenchmen, and it's one of the miracle battles of history, and then they say, uh, the Frenchmen have lost a thousand knights and aristocrats and so on, and we lost a page, a squire boy, and uh, another one, and that was all. And of the regular soldiers, we lost 25 or 35. Kind of what? Those people lost a thousand armored knights, and this guy lost a squire boy and another guy, and 35 regular soldiers kind of who can believe that in a struggle which is going on a field like this. And then Henrik V, at least in the interpretation of Shakespeare, Henrik V says, let it be proclaimed that whoever states that they have won this battle, they, I will order them to be hanged. Because this battle was not won by no man. This battle was won <coughs> by God. Only God could have won such a battle in such a way. Therefore, he says, let's go to church and give praise to God, because this was not a battle won by us. Human beings cannot win. It's completely out of proportion. We couldn't have won such a thing in such a scandalously disproportionate way. So he says, I forbid you even to think or say the words that we won the battle in Azink. We didn't. We happened to be there and look at what happened. It was God who fought on our side, and that's why God won the battle for us. In that way, it is the same thing here which Jesus says. It's basically, he's coming back to the essential of karma yoga. And I will quote only half of the last next paragraph, because it comes to one of the fundamental things. That will take a long comment. And he says then, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. He had in mind a certain class of Jews of the day, who he criticizes openly later, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all kind of others, because he considers them obviously to be hypocrites. And he obviously has in mind a category, like when you speak today about those people or those people or those, you always think about some class, some social layer, some category of people. Jesus seems to have a pretty clear idea about what's happening in the world around him, and therefore he criticizes vehemently this lukewarm religious hypocrisy of the day, which we witness today in the so-called, in all these bourgeois type of patterns of culture, where a man like George W. Bush or whatever can claim he's a Christian or whatever. Uh, that kind of thing, it's Jesus comes to such level and he says, this kind, this is where the hypocrisy is. This is hypocrisy. So he says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be, by, to be seen by men. That is exactly what it is. I tell you the truth, 
they have received their reward in full. That means people saw them and said, Wow, Walter is praying, what a religious man. That is, you have received your reward in full. This is bringing a little bit of questions to this kind of ritual where three people start doing public prayers, public processions. This is becoming a bit of missionarism. Jesus is preaching prayer in loneliness or in small groups. Prayer not in an exhibitionistic or flashy way. Prayer in a way which is you and God. The same would be valid about spiritual practice in general. But when you pray, go into your room, close your door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, so the principle is clear, here he changes the idea, that means he simply says, go, close your room and do what you have to do. That means that you sublime your need for physical things because we human beings we are always uh, hungry for physical presence physical confirmation that somebody should clap us on the shoulder and say good job Walter you are doing an amazing job yes that's the right we are Svadistanistic we always ask for sociability for social confirmation when we are alone either we falter and we run squealing in the society because we need to be confirmed or the strong ones manage to stay alone and to be confirmed only by God in silence. I don't need the human beings to confirm me. Yes, you are doing the right thing. Yes, you are a spiritual person. That's not the essence of what I'm trying to reach. God is confirming me anyhow in silence through my own inner self. Therefore, here the conclusion is very clear and remember that we have this, this is one of our pitfalls, it's Vadistana actually, which all the time is like, are you with me, you know, are you all praying just like me, am I doing the right thing, yes, am I a good sheep here, yeah, right, then we can pray a little bit more together, it's like the group is reinforcing my practice, it is making me feel more confident and I'm going more strong, but the danger is, that I fall into this Vadistanistic pattern, that I can find my combination only, I can find my confirmation only through the group and only through the others. If I am not able to withdraw in loneliness and to do my practice alone for a while and to be myself alone, then I am not a complete practitioner. That is why I recommend to any one of you who is afraid to be alone or this, Sometimes not to do into retreats, to go into retreats where there is many people with you and you look at the left and you look at the right and there is other people meditating just like you. But to go in lonely retreats, to simply be alone in a room for a number of days, to be alone somewhere in the mountains and so on and not to be confirmed by anybody because this is how you derive your actual strength and your relationship with the universe. Remember that the group has many wonderful effects. You are here a group and everybody knows when the yoga group, when the community is together, people practice more, they talk more, they are more inspired, they feel encouraged by each other. That's the good part of it. But from a certain level on, you also need from time to time at least to escape in loneliness because if not, 
you are all the time requiring your confirmation from the others. And in a more or less discreet way, in a more or less intelligent way, you always try to make everybody hear what you do. That means, uh, you see, I'm doing four hours of meditation per day. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. It's like you ask for confirmation and you can say that at a certain level also your ego is thirsty for some praise. It is willing of something. Let only your teacher or the ones who guide you know exactly what you do and for the rest be able to be exactly like a person who would be able to go in loneliness. I don't need to be confirmed. I can be alone and do some things and then I come with my results and they are just like this and I have already obtained the results. There is a great strength in this. And the final paragraph which I will read for tonight. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Basically here, Jesus is laying the foundation of the art of prayer and in the next paragraph he will actually give a fundamental example, the Lord's Prayer, the fundamental prayer which has so many things involved into it that I will not start commenting on it tonight. Basically he says, your prayer does not need to be complicated. It's not about babbling many words. Some people believe that shouting it or saying it theatrically or whatever will give more strength. He says, remember, God already knows. That means the issue is not in uh, expressing it in a flashy or external way. Basically, you can understand from the words of Jesus that he says, actually, you don't need to express it externally. The prayer can be purely internal because God reads the heart. God knows what you actually need. Why do you need to say it with loud voice? Are you afraid that God will not listen to you? That God will not hear if you say it only in your mind? You cannot be that naive. And therefore, he simply says, do not do it like there were all some of these uh, Gentiles, the tribes around, all the non-Jews around, who are practicing all this kind of uh, paganistic, old-fashioned type of cults and religions based more on witchcraft and natural, natural magic and uh, all kind of things like this. And he says these people are practicing all kind of flashy things. Don't do the same. Be modest. That means the prayer needs to be inside because after all, God is in spirit. Therefore, the prayer is not outwardly unless you need it for something. There are in the history of Christianity examples of people who needed to pray with loud voice. One of the most shocking examples is the Russian saint Seraphim of Sarov, who at some point when he started doing his practice, he noticed some heavy demonic influences on him, and uh, basically he was trying hard to pray, but he was unable to pray. His mind was running all the time, and he was unable and then he started praying with loud voice and when he noticed that that was not enough he actually started shouting the prayer with loud voice but remember for God's sake that Seraphim of Sarov was living in Siberia in some north Siberian forest where he could howl like a wolf and nobody would care any one of you has the intention to do like this 
please go at least three, four, five kilometers away from any human settlement, and then you can howl as much as you all want, because if not, you might find yourself committed in some mental institution by well-wishers, and you might also throw a bad stain on your practice, because many people will say, this is on the brink of madness, this is on the edge of madness. Therefore, this kind of practice is an exceptional one, it is indeed a shocking one, but else, everybody who has been in the art of prayer, and of course you know it from meditation and the others, it is not about many words, he says, don't babble a lot because God knows what you do. In this way, Jesus is substantiating the short prayer, the prayer which is even repeated a lot, such as like the mantra type of prayer, the prayer of the heart and other such things. And in this way, Jesus is also substantiating the internal prayer as being superior because he says, first of all, you don't need to be a hypocrite and to do anything external. And second then, you don't need to shout to God, because God listens anyhow, God hears anyhow. It's only a manifestation of your consciousness. If your consciousness is clear, then you will understand what it is. Still at this point, Jesus has not spoken yet a lot about prayer, and he speaks about prayer like an action, where you are actually asking something of God. I must say tentatively and uh, preventively, that asking something of God, anything else besides to be one with God, is a ridiculous thing in the meaning that, yes, sometimes we do it, uh, everybody does it, and of course it is considered to be legitimate that you can tell to God, God give me health, God give me this, God give me that, and it is perfectly legitimate, but you will see that there are levels and levels of prayer and basically to use the power of prayer for just getting uh, healthy cows, healthy cattle and good crops is not wrong, nobody would ever condemn that, but it is a kind of like a very primitive or inferior way of using. The word prayer for most people seems to be a word in which you ask, you beg God for all kinds of things. No, prayer is not that. Prayer is like talking to yourself, first of all. Prayer is like communication. It's like if your daddy will be here right now, what would you tell your daddy? You would tell a lot of sweet things, like exactly look at the child talking to its daddy or whatever. It is not craving all the time and asking for things. It is actually just communicating, just talking their heart out. I just need tell you to communicate you my love, my communication, my affection. And that is why prayer is actually not asking. Very seldom prayer becomes an act of asking and that is considered a magical prayer and a pretty inferior prayer, while it is not wrong or forbidden to do so. And many people would say, well, instead of stealing or instead of working your life off <laughs> and losing your life on some stupid thing, try working 20 years to get it, can't you also ask it from God and save the time and obtain it through the divine grace? Yes, of course you can pray for something, and when they will come, they will come. It's like we can all uh, hope, for example, to build an ashram and to do things and to have something, and at the same time we can uh, say, well, we can either work hard for it, but at the same time there is no opposition 
to praying to God. If it comes or if it doesn't come, that is the divine consciousness business. But at least you can ask. I can be a foolish child and ask from my father something which is ridiculous and then my father will laugh indulgently and will say, yeah, right. It's exactly as a child asks for the moon and his physical father laughs and he says, Walter, Walter, you have to grow up, you know, it's kind of, you're asking for the moon, you know. But there is no harm in a child asking for the moon. There's no harm in asking, only that it will be answered with a kind laughter and saying like, okay, you will understand when you learn astronomy, you'll understand why it is not possible actually to get the moon and what will that mean. And in that way, it is the same here. It is, there is no wrong in asking, but remember that the prayer is not asking for objects or services or miracles or whatever. The true prayer is a communication, is a oneness, is a unification with the divine consciousness. That is why you will see that Jesus expresses this in a beautiful way. And he says there is no need for any flashy form of prayer. I have seen often people trying, doing acts of prayer in public and so on. Jesus obviously and literally in the Bible advises better not because there is a grave suspicion that you are just doing it to inflate your ego and you expect Vadistanistic recognition from other people. Expect everything from God. This is where Jesus puts his emphasis. He, as you can see, the message of Jesus starts appearing already. He is obviously coming out of this Vadistanistic, crawling, uh, jellyfish blindness, but at the same time he is sticking out of Manipura as well, and he says, even this Manipura with its sharpness, it still has its painful parts, it still has its terrible parts, let us move directly to the heart, because the heart is the minimum best that you can do at this level on this planet. That is why again and again follow this chakra game that Jesus is all the time confronting the Svadistanistic and Manipuristic limitations of his contemporaries and of the whole humanity and all the time coming with something ideal at the level of Anahata chakra, sometimes of course pointing directly to Sahasrara, to the things of the Divine Spirit. I will not say more, we will stop with the reading here tonight. Let us see if we have any particular questions or problems or issues that we want to be debated. Usually, of course, since these lectures are long, okay, tonight we also started this late.